foot enthusiasts, minimal footwear lovers, or anyone trying to fix your own feet, I'm heading to North Carolina this May to lead a live, in-person, three-day retreat all about feet. I'm going to be at the Art of Living Retreat Center, which is up in the mountains of North Carolina. It's so beautiful there. And are you ready to hear what I'm calling it? The retreat is called Healing Your Soul, a stepwise approach to building forever functional feet. That's so good, right? If you want to learn all about how to take care of the muscles, bones, joints, fascia, and nerves of the feet, and learn how strong feet and ankles relate to sustainable hips and knees, this event is for you. In addition to the classroom and movement time with me, you're on retreat. So there's delicious meals, a nature-rich campus that you can explore on foot, and plenty of time for rest and relaxation, all included. A retreat is a perfect way to care for yourself in the moment, but also in the future. You are coming to learn a massive toolkit of information. So whether you're a competitive runner, a dynamic ager, or a healthcare practitioner, this is a weekend full of movement for you and your feet. And like I said, you're gonna leave with a toolkit and a big swag bag that you can use to train your feet for life. For more information about the movement sessions, the food, the center, head to my website, nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. That's nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. This is Katie B, and you are about to listen to an early episode of my podcast. Now the show is called The Move Your DNA Podcast, and you can find all episode transcripts and the show notes to this episode at nutritiousmovement.com slash podcast. Enjoy. Hey everyone, Danny here. Katie was flopping around her office in a mid-morning drunken stupor, wearing high heel shoes no less, and threw herself over her topo mat in a parkour-inspired attempt at low vaulting. Unfortunately, she not only failed to execute the vault, but also succeeded in busting her microphone off its base. Then she put on a charm bracelet and recorded the podcast holding her mic in her rattly hand. She does have a new mic stand on order, but please bear with us. This is how you keep it real. podcast where movement geek Danny Hemet, that's me, joins biomechanist Katie Bowman, author of Move Your DNA, for discussions on body mechanics, movement nutrition, natural movement, and how movement can be the solution to modern ailments we all experience. Okay, today we are going to talk about eyes and natural movement and how that affects things like vision. Because People get with movement like arms and legs and, and the exercise parts, but I don't think we think about our eyeballs that much. Mm-mm. And a lot of times, I mean, something that's been awesome, and I keep pulling this out of when I reread Move Your DNA, is that it's not just us moving, it's our environment moving us. Mm. And, and that's so important to remember because there's so many things that can have an effect on ourselves. And I think that's, I think it's left out a lot in discussions about, you know, why is nature so important for people? They're like, because of the fresh air and all these other things. And, and for me, it really is no, it's literally moving you indoors moves you in a different way than the outdoors do. And the eyeballs seem to be a good place to, 
to get that idea across. And then bonus, it's a huge thing right now in academic type research of people. I mean, it has for a while, but I mean, you can't, you'll just trip over a research article on eyeballs and outdoor time. You know, they're just so prolific everywhere. Have you ever done that? Have you ever tripped over eyeball research? Yeah, when I'm not looking where I'm going. Uh. Uh. And speaking of looking, let's look at this statistic. It needs a closer look. When I read this, that just blew my mind. 1.4 billion people, that's 22.6% of the population, are affected with myopia. Which is nearsightedness for those people who don't know. That is nearsightedness. And here's a cool name. They're called myopes, which is kind of cute. They sound like, you know, they're frolic along with unicorns, myopes. And the incidence of myopia has doubled in the United States and Europe in the last 50 years, which is a huge number, mm. doubled, mm-hmm. okay? But in China, it's up 80%. What gives? I know. So that's what we need to talk about. But just an interesting yeah. side note, I go to Europe a couple times a year for work. And when I was in the Holland... We were walking, you know, always walking around everywhere we go. And I passed an eyeglasses shop, an optometrist, I guess. And the display that was featured was a children's display. And I had never, you know, I grew up, I've been wearing glasses, which we can talk about that in a minute. Usually the children's glasses section was this tiny component of an otherwise adult styles to pick from right it was like all adults and then it'd be like six oh there's like six yeah. frames for the kids to choose from I know. all stupid all stupid <laughs> thank god they gave us little gold stickers to put in the the bottom corner stupid. of the lens because the frames were so stupid they were not cool they were just basically smaller oh. versions of what your parents were wearing in the 80s i was like amazing <laughs> thank you so yeah, much not, not much smaller for some of us no. i've seen your pictures no no and you've seen exactly thanks <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, no problem. Now there's tons of kids frames, which just anecdotally, that's like, okay, why are all these kids needing glasses? Exactly. And so, I mean, I've been seeing this for the last few years, really almost on the leading edge of the research coming out. So clearly there was a demand and then the consumer filled the demand. And then, you know, the research is like, wait, wait, what happened? So here's, this is a quote from, there's a really great article that if you're interested in this, you can just go Google and find it's called the myopia boom is the title And it's published on, uh, I don't know if it was actually in the journal or if it was kind of on their web component for Nature, which is a big journal. Quote, East Asia has been gripped by an unprecedented rise in myopia, also known as short-sightedness. 60 years ago, 10 to 20% of the Chinese population was short-sighted. Today, up to 90% of teenagers and young adults are. In Seoul, a whooping, or is it a whopping? I believe whopping. That's right. Do you have your glasses on? One O, two Ps. No, I'm just an idiot. I am an idiot with perfect vision. <laughs> there's there's no, there's no frames for in that. So- <laughs> in Seoul, a whopping 96.5% of 19-year-old men are short-sighted. That's like everybody they're also, in that age group. They're also nearsighted. Wow. I just want to say, I think short-sighted is not, I have this, I'm working on this section of a new book on essays and I'm talking about words being confusing. I don't think short-sighted is given its other meanings. 
you know, being short-sighted, mm-hmm. um, nearsighted or sticking with myopia is better. But 96.5 of 19-year-old men. That is amazing statistics. That's like, it's horrifying too. It's, you know, wow. well, what it does is it's, it's indicative. It's indicative of not only an issue. I mean, you're, you're taking, I like your closer look pun, by the way. I can't let that go unnoticed. Oh, thank you. It's not only the, the prevalence of it, it's the increase of it, the rapid increase of mm-hmm. it. Like there's some major thing going on. And I think that's why there's been such an abundant amount of research. It's like, wait, this isn't, this is... This is a big yeah. deal. And, you know, I think it's easy to say, well, myopia, who cares? You know, like get some glasses. But there are a stepping stone to other ailments of the eye that aren't just about how you see. They're about the health of the eye. Vision is a very important mm-hmm. sense. And so I think it's, you know, move your DNA. Talk about these red flags. Like we have a, we have a red flag as a species that's going off. Let's pay attention to it. You don't have to... You don't have to change your lifestyle if you're not interested in it, but you don't necessarily want to dismiss or science shouldn't dismiss a red flag just because some people aren't interested or don't think it's a big a, a big enough deal to warrant investigation because it's it's saying something about right and it's people. not just myopia. I mean, it it can increase the risk of cataracts, glaucoma, retinal yes. detachment when you get older. They got it look at that first, I guess. Well, it's kind of like when you get older, when you have these more advanced stuff, it's like, why didn't anyone tell me? I want, there's no, there's no solution for this bigger stuff. I'm like, well, the solution for so many of these bigger things start in understanding the first warning flags that go off 30 to 60 years beforehand. So Mm -hmm. if we're trying to solve bigger medical issues, mechanism, long-term mechanism is a good place to start. And so luckily... That's what everyone's been doing. So, gosh, where are we going to start? So, first off, I guess that we should have a disclaimer here. Read the fine print. <laughs> I have worn oh, glasses one. since I was seven. What about you? Um, eight. And then what's your prescription? Oh, gosh. All right. Don't, don't chuckle. It is negative 8.5. Wow. So I'm seven. Yeah. But I've I've also got what five years on you. Mm. Well, has it? Have you had a Although change? Although my prescription hasn't changed in like five years. No. It's crazy. It just hit. I hit a point and it just kind of yeah. slowed down. Yeah. Well, it has a lot. To, I think it has to do with growth as well. But yeah, my prescription really hasn't changed since I've been in my early twenties, and I'm going to be forty next month. So that's good. I've been holding steady. Are your parents? I know that in your book you had your mom with mm-hmm. her big uh, goggles on, but what about? Daddy Bowman. Daddy Bowman still uh, doesn't need glasses. I mean, he has got oh, some really? cheaters as an older person, but no, no. Sure. He was not a glasses kind of guy. So, nope. No myopia there. What about your folks? Both. Mm. And I was reading that one study that said it's not, and we can just talk about this later, but, you know, everybody, when I got glasses, like, well, of course, your parents have glasses Mm -hmm. and your siblings have glasses. So you're going to, but genetics aren't everything, but they can be part of that. If you, if you develop myopia, I mean, it's not just because of your parents, but there is a gene for it, correct? Well, there's not a gene for it. Like genetics are definitely playing a role. And that was kind of the earlier understanding and the earlier theories of myopia was that it was more, they were more gene centric because you would have identical twins who both had it. But when you cast a net a little bit wider than twin studies, who, of course, a lot of the times are growing up in the same homes or whatnot, 
even in twins that don't grow up in the same home, you're still being influenced quite heavily by your environment. So in the 60s, genetics weren't understood as well as they are, like the epigenetic or environmental factors. They're much more commonly discussed, I think, now. I think that the in the same way that there are studies now looking at these large populations of people and it's increasing, there are also studies looking at populations who traditionally have almost never worn glasses. So I know that there's a couple, you know, the understanding of cultures who, I don't know if there's not a term for this, but it's cultures who are, is literary centric the word where their culture revolves around reading and writing? You know, there are, like I said, hunter-gatherer populations now who don't read or write, certainly not starting at two years old, you know, putting a child in front Mm -hmm. of a book and read, you know, like, I'm going to read to you. And so there's like this, there is a value on the ability to read and write now where there are cultures where that value is not there. And in those non, I don't, I'm just making up literary centric, like in cultures that are not based or founded or reading or writing is not a component of that, you don't see the same myopia. Nearsightedness is not an issue because there's not a lot of time spent in nearsighted situations. And also in that myopia boom, they're also talking about in the 60s, they studied Inuits and they found Inuits who are kind of the native people to Alaska and elsewhere. But in Alaska, people who grew up in these more, I want to say natural is not the right word, but they were in these traditional communities I think two out of 130 were myopic. Wow. But when they look at their kids who have been transitioning to a modern way of living, which that this is going to be the part that we'll talk about next, is like what are the actual variables associated with modern living? It's been identified that people who live in a more traditional setup have less myopia. People who live in a more modern setup have more myopia. And because it's increasing, it's like what is it that's increasing What what is, what is like, you can say modern, but modern is a very big category. So Mm -hmm. the big call is to delineate more, delineate meaning like to be able to break down in a more refined way what we mean by modern to be able to reduce the variable. So that's what they've been doing. I've been trying to reduce what is it about modern and initially, and this is all in movie or DNA. Initially, it was thought to be near work, reading, writing in more modern times screen time, handhelds, you know, that kind of stuff. But they never actually delineate near work work to be like 18 inches. I always find like if you would just stop using words and start using math, it would be easier. So like (laughs) delineate 18 inches and call that tested. And when they tested, they really didn't find that people who did more near work were less likely to be myopic. So... I wrote a blog post about this. Well, that kind of gets rid of that, huh? Well, you know, so it's like, oh, well, then it's not reading or writing. It's like, well, that doesn't, that's not necessarily what it means. What it means is if you're not looking at 18 inches, what else are you looking at? So in movie DNA, that's when I further delineate to go, we still have to really consider like if, if zero to 18 inches from your face is near work, what about the mid distance of zero to 20 to 30 feet, which is really the farthest you ever look on a regular basis because you're indoors or what you're looking at is very close and your eyeballs ability to move the muscles in the eye. So nearsightedness is really created by enough tension in the muscles 
that change the shape of the lens that affect the distance at which you're focusing at. They are, it's almost like distance, a lack of distance looking is kind of casting your eye. So it sets a ring of tension and then your eyeball's growing while with this cast. I'm going to say the cast around it. So your, your ciliary muscles, if you think of your eyeball, if you think of a ring inside your eyeball, I'm trying to think of a good way for an audio show. Like, like what's a good example? The blog post that you wrote about that mm-hmm. is so well illustrated with all the stuff around your house. You mean pumpkins and... Yeah, hula hoops, whatnot, straws. I don't know what you had going on there. But it made a lot of sense. And so we will link to that. Yeah, as it's... well as all these other gazillion of research articles in the show notes. Yeah, so it's just kind of like, it's hard to describe it. But you have, you have this ring of muscle around your eye. So if you imagine your eye like to be like an orange, the ring is kind of like an embroidery hoop, you know, like, cause that's something that everyone has familiarity with, you know, an embroidery hoop, this ring and it's, but it's inside the orange. It's just inside the rind. And so it tenses on the inside, but one part that hasn't been really ever written out and it's on my list of things to do. It's always on my list of things to do to like write letters to the editor right after these articles are published, but I just haven't had the time. So I turn it into a blog post and, you know, there it sits in obscurentia. Is that a word? It is now. Ding. You're on a roll. That's two words a podcast. Every time you make up a word, <laughs> an angel gets its wings. Yes. You're, it's, an, it's, an, it's a cast around the eyeball. So the eyeball is continuing to grow, but it's in this kind of ring of tension. So when you have myopic eyes, myopes will tend to have longer eyeballs from the front to the back of your eyeball. So out the length, the long, the long axis of the eyeball will tend to be longer. Because they're being squeezed by those tiny muscles, right? Yes. My hypothesis is it's because this ring of tension is around it as it's growing. And so there's been a couple there's been another study where they're trying to figure out how to get eye, eyeballs to relax. And it's been in using particular drugs that will target the muscle that would have the physical, you know, like with biomechanics or physics, if you take a balloon and squeeze it around the middle, it's going to bulge at the end. That is mm-hmm. just, that's the basic physical c- scenario that will result every time. So I'm like, hey, you've got this ring of muscle and. Yes, it moves the lens, but it can also collapse or cast the entire eyeball. And as it's growing, it's going to cause it to grow with a longer front-to-back axis, which is then going to make the eye more myopic. Yeah, that was real eye-opening. Oh, I didn't oh, even mean to do that. No, that oh, was my good. gosh. But in movie DNA, like we used to do eye breaks where you'd have us, you know, look at far, stuff far away and come back in. But then movie DNA came out and I read through that and I had never thought about it, not just close work, like you said, but everything in your yeah. house, you know, you're only looking up to 30 feet. It, it just blew everything away. It's like, wow, this entire thing that I'm paying rent on is my cast. Oh my God. And I I love that thought. It's made me more paranoid about my kids' eyes because I already have one in glasses. What you're saying there, that that's a very important piece that I think is missing and why distance and looking isn't better delineated because I don't think that a lot of people really consider being inside not having a far away place to look at that that's a cultural blind spot if you will oh. where 
you know, how, I wonder, I try to think like, how far can I look? You know, you can look off to like a mile, you know, you can look hundreds Mm -hmm. of feet away from you and focus. Your eye has that ability, but that's that, that understanding comes with being someone who is outside focusing on things far, far away a lot. And that is probably not the person that designs the studies. Like it, it wouldn't, I don't think, automatically occur that distance looking would be converted into feet as something like, I don't know, 800 feet, 1,200 feet. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like the last two podcasts we did on cardio. And in fact, when, when you say things like 10,000 reps or 30 feet seems like really far for your eye to look. But when you look at 30 feet as a percentage of the total distance over which your eye is able to see, you're looking at something that's like 6%. So the, yeah. your study was set up over 18 inches to 30 feet over the potential of the human eye to see clearly, you know, over hundreds of feet that we, that, that, that understanding is just not there. And, and so the letter to the editor of nature that I have still yet to write, just to kind of go, let me give you a breakdown of, of, of what mathematically you just looked at so that when they're trying to design a study in the future to really start looking at, well, you know, you're still on the near ranges. You haven't eliminated looking up close just because you eliminated looking at 18 inches. You are still looking at looking at under 10% of what the eye can see. I would put that letter at the top of your to-do pile. It's just letters to the editor because that I would really like, you know, different, different studies on that. Mm. But, but in the end, like I always, I grapple with this all the time. Like what's more important for it to go there or for us to do this podcast, you know, like it's going to go again into abstentia. No, that's, that's not the word I want. Like obscure, obscuria. Like it just, it's there and it will help. I think people, if they happen to read it, design a better study. But in the end, I'm just mostly interested with my own understanding. And if other people want to join me on this ride, I am able to make decisions in my life based on that kind of stuff. So I don't know. It's yeah. on, it's on the list. It's on a list somewhere. I just can't find it because I am too nearsighted. Yeah. You myope, you. Myopes. We're myopes. Sweet, sweet little myopes. We're myope. So cute. All right. You know, in headlines, I, I subscribe probably as you do to lots of, you know, get your kids outside in nature blogs and, and stuff like that. And you just keep reading outdoor time and myopia, like get the kids outside mm-hmm. to save their eyes. And and you've written some stuff on this, but let's break it down. What is it? Just like outdoors. Break it down. What, <laughs> what is it with the outdoors? It's not just the outdoors. Well, it's it's, it's a not just that fresh air, but what is it? Well, that's the thing. So again, this is going back to what does outdoors mean? And so that's that's where scientific reductionism is beautiful because it's like, well, what we've been able to determine is that kids, even if they have the gene in air quotes, the gene that's been identified associated with myopia, even if you have that gene, if you go outside, children who have that gene are going to be less likely to express myopia than someone with the gene. So you talked earlier about, is there genes like, yes, there have been genes that have been identified. They're like, they're not myopia genes. They are genes because you can have that gene and not have myopia. So therefore it's not a myopia gene, right? It's it is something about the tissue. It's like what well, they called it a variant or something. Well, it's kind of like in Move Your DNA, and we talked about the floppy fins of an orca. You could, if you take all of the orcas in captivity with a folded over fin and did a genetic sample, it'd be very 
likely that you could find a gene that's occurring in everyone that has a folded fin. But if you go into the wild, you could find that same gene in orcas that don't have the folded over fin, Mm. meaning that that gene is not a myopia gene. That gene is not a folded fin syndrome gene. And so it's about language. It's about, if we call it the myopia gene, you are leading people to think that there is something that's creating, that the gene is creating the problem. The gene is just there being in charge of in the folded, in the fin of an orca. It's there in charge of a certain type of collagen or a certain height of the fin. It's there regulating something else. It's not there regulating whether or not the fin is up or down. The fin being up or down is is the interface of that gene and the environment, mechanical being one of them. So outdoors, going outdoors has a protective effect. It has, it makes the myopia gene, which we won't call that again, it makes that gene associated with myopia not express. Why? That's the next series of questions. What is it about being outside? Children who go outside more often are less likely to have myopia, even if they have this gene associated with myopia. So then you have to reduce outside into, is it, what did you say, fresh air? Like, is it fresh air in the eyeballs? Is it light exposure? What is light? Is it the UV rays? Is it the vitamin D that your body creates in the light? Is it the ability to see farther than 30 feet? Is it the fact that you move around more? Like that's what the scientific process is, is you are trying to, all you know is, is when you go outdoors, this happens. That might be enough for you to go, well, great, then I'll go outside. But if it's not fresh air and it's distance looking instead, then you might be like, well, I'll just go type on my computer outside or I'll go read my book outside because being outside is what will make my eyes better. But it's not really being outside. It's they've I think they've eliminated vitamin D. I don't know if anyone's looked at fresh air or anything like that. But <laughs> but what I come back to is like when you're designing research, you want to kind of work within what's biologically plausible or the other things that are already pretty well known. We already know pretty well how these ciliary mus- muscles work and you do not get the tension off of the eyeball until you look at something far away, not 30 feet away, or, or the, the ability to relax the eye is distance dependent. And then you have to look at frequency. How frequently do you have to look at something far away versus how much can you look at something up close? Like what's the dosage of those things that would create an eye that at rest, although it's not really ever at rest, that, that would allow for a more supple ciliary body. And then there are also things like Nutrition, like mm-hmm. what minerals does it take to relax? Like all all muscles, you could have a per, you could have a perfect movement diet, but if your nutritional dietary diet sucks, you don't have the building blocks necessary to even relax things all the way. So even if you weren't busy tensing your muscles to accomplish some physical task, the diet that you have the of the building blocks, the nutrients there, they could be missing essential components that would allow that relaxation to occur. So Maybe you're looking at something far, far away, but you don't have the calcium necessary to create the cycle of events that allows for a muscle to relax. So it's a complex question. And I know you were, I think you had asked something like, why can't I find a study that shows it all? Yeah, it just, I looked and looked and like everything has to do pretty much with light exposure. And there's, 
but like you said, you just can't reduce it to that. And I know they can only. Well, you don't find, this is a lot of things. Like, why can't I just see a study based on this thing that you're talking about? It's like, because that's not how science works. <laughs> I know, if you, it, it, if you be... saw, you do, you saw everything. The study said outdoor is protective, but outdoor is protective. If you have then someone go, well, I was outdoors all the time and it's not protective. It's like, well, because it's not actually outdoors. It's going to be some other variable found in outdoors. If they were all contained in one study, you wouldn't actually be able to research the variables. There is not, when you do a study, you don't set up, and we're going to look at these six variables individually. Usually, you don't have the funding or the population. You know, you have to gather controls and for all those people. So you just do one variable at a time and you publish it because I remember, suppose. your job is to publish. Your job is to publish. So why would you do one? that had all six and get one publication versus six separate publications done over four or five years. That's your job is to publish. So you are going to set up your investigations similar to what you need in your life. So that's why you don't find studies that have everything. You can get right. some good review studies. There'll be some good review studies in the next 20 years. Um, review studies are often my favorite because they are collations of 30 articles that have looked at this and and so that's what you would want to find but you have to read through a lot to be able to find it i understand it but i don't like it (laughs) well that's fine i like it i like it like then that's why you have people who like it and there's people who like it to be broken down and to not i mean but this is why i'm nearsighted (laughs) because i like to read all of it you know i i i i do i get those puns when i just say i no, not in this show. Oh. Oh, I'm oh. sorry. Because it's just too easy. You're better than that. <laughs> not really. You're better than that. I don't know. Was it you that wrote it or did I make this up? Because I frequently make stuff up. As you know, you make up words. I just make up everything else. Like entire <laughs> conversations, facts, etc. Well, you are a fiction writer. Every time you yes. write anything, you're like, this is the fiction writer's interpretation <laughs> of what just happened. <laughs> not a scientist. Okay. You frequently talk about, you know, if you don't use it, then your body adapts to a certain thing. Like if we sit in a chair and and um, we're always wearing heels, then our calf muscles are going to adapt. You what, adapt to what, what you do most frequently. Yeah. Yes. You adapt. It's not if you don't use it, you adapt. It, you adapt to whatever you do most frequently. Okay. End. So are more people getting myopia because we're just not asking our eyes to do what they're supposed to do? And so our body's saying, you know what, I'm going to... I had to quit putting so much energy toward that and, and just let it go. They've got glasses. They don't need me. I have to put my, you know, metabolizing elsewhere to, to run this body. I mean, what is that just our body being protective because we're not asking it to do things or what? Because 60 or 50 years, 60 years, whatever it was with the, the increase in myopia, that's very, 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 very short time in the whole scope of our bodies changing and evolving. That's like super short to have such a huge increase. There's no, yeah, there's not, not an evolution. It's not an evolutionary thing. It's an, right. it's an adaptation. Right. It's, it's like a lot for a change. No. Are we just, are, do you understand the question? Like you, your, your environment has changed radically in 50 years. And so if you could plot out the change in vision with the change, like even if you just wanted to do outdoor time and stick to, we don't know any other variable you are going to see a rapid decline in outdoor time. Like I bet that your children spend less time outside than you did as a child mm-hmm. and that you spent less time outside as your parents did as a child and that they spent less t- time outside than their grandparents. That within 50 years, 
you could actually get some, I mean, it's, it's going to be qualitative. I mean, it's quantitative in nature, but you're recalling, right? But if you just right. looked at how far did you have to walk to school? What was the length of your school day? How many TV shows did you watch in a day? Right. So like you go to like, there wasn't even a TV to watch, you know? So when you, what about homework? When did homework start? Like how many hours have you been looking at less than 18 inches, less than 10 feet? And so you're just going to see that alongside what seems like a rapid increase in myopia is also a rapid change in the things that we look at and the amount of time that we spend inside. It's very hard to get people to, people do not go outside anymore. It's the strangest thing. You could go outside. If you just did a number, I mean, I don't know how you would gather the data, but like if you looked at a number of people in a town and how many people and how many minutes each one of those were outside, you're going to see that it's very, very small. I I feel like everyone's like, you know, your work on like getting your kids to go outside is revolutionary. And like, I don't find it to be revolutionary. I find it to be what was happening 50 years ago or a hundred years ago. It's Mm -hmm. very small. It's just that we have become indoor creatures. And the idea that outside is a a nutrient is kind of mind boggling. Cause like you don't need to go outside really for anything and walking through outside. And so we can then separate. If you looked at other variables, like when you do go outside, what are you doing? You're on a playground, you know, you're looking at still, within 20 to 30 feet, which is different than hunting. You know, how many people, how many of your grandfathers of the people listening hunted, you know, where they were out walking large, long distances. Like I, my parents, my dad especially is a lot older. He's 88. And so his life entailed quite a bit more. It's not even hunter gathering, but it's just I had to walk to the farm over. It was six mm-hmm. miles. Like he, he just did a lot more moving through landscapes and not looking at stuff that was only 20 to 30 feet away. And so he just had these bigger eye breaks, but they're getting smaller and smaller. And the 19 year olds, the 19 year olds that we were talking about earlier were so, yeah. 89%, 96%, it whatever yeah, it was, 96. 96%. It would be really interesting to create some sort of, I don't know how you would do it, it would be neat if some of the eye research could have some sort of camera that was not inserted, but attached to the temple to see exactly what they were looking at. Like that would be a good Mm -hmm. study design to be like, we are going to, this camera is going to measure the farthest possible distance from this eyeball over a period of one month so that you could quantify exactly how far away these people are looking. And if there was a, I mean, that's, that's easy design. The technology, I don't even think would be that problematic, but that would be a way to further delineate distance looking from near work to go, whoa, this person never looked farther than 20 feet away. That's, that's in that case, myopia would be exactly what you would physiologically expect to find. That would be the physiological mechanism already understood behaving exactly as you would expect Mm -hmm. it to given the input. Okay. All right, let's take a movement break. <laughs> Quick, go let's, outside. Let's, yeah, let's do our <laughs> eyes, and then because I have some questions I want to ask. Our- well, I'm looking up. I just hit my. I just hit. I'm wearing my glasses right now. I hardly ever wear my glasses, but I'm looking outside at something far away. It relaxes me now, and you know it's weird. Like um, minimal shoes. When you go back to regular shoes from wearing minimal shoes, 
that's how my eyeballs feel inside now. They hurt. Really? So it yes, I can you. feel them tense. I can feel them being tense as as I'm inside versus outside, you know? So mm-hmm. it's it's kind of interesting. Anyhow, so that was my movement break, is just to look at something far away. Try to find the farthest, farthest, not the furthest, farthest. Yeah, farthest. Thing that you could possibly look at. It'd be... I'd love to be more quantitative, but it's kind of like, I don't need, I don't need to know if it's 350 or 200. I know that it's farther than the tree that's in the backyard. And then that's farther still than my computer screen or this microphone that I'm looking at right now. So I just try to see how, when I go out and walking, like instead of looking at the ground, I'm always looking up and just trying to find the thing that is, that's the farthest away, but that I can also focus on. It's like, wow, I can see bird silhouettes. I can recognize birds. Like this is a tool. This is a, an age old survival tool that you have mm-hmm. that you just haven't used in the same way you haven't used your arms to haul yourself up anywhere. And you haven't had your, used your eyes to see something far away. It's just cross training, but for your eyeballs, you've only been using, I, I liken it like this. If you took, if you took your arm and held a 40 pound dumbbell in one arm and you flexed all the way one bicep curl all the way up the way that you're using your eyes is similar to only letting it, your your bicep curl go down one inch and pull it back up again mm. if you just did ten thousand bicep curls a day one inch down one inch up one inch down one inch up if you could figure out what your bicep how your bicep would adapt to that that is what nearsightedness is for your eyeballs You are doing 10,000 repetitions a day of using 3% of the range of motion of your eye. What do you expect? Right. Myopia is the physiological situation that you would absolutely expect from that scenario. Well, I think this podcast is going to help a lot of people look at it differently. (sighs) Oh my God. What can I do? There's nothing to do. It just happens that way. It does. But just because you didn't like, you had in an old blog post, I think it was even before I started reading your stuff and you talked about relaxing your eyes, just like sitting there and like consciously relaxing your eyes. Well, I read that at first and I was like, well, it doesn't make any sense, but then I tried it. Mm -hmm. I, it's like, I'm clenching my eyes all the time. I didn't even realize it. Well, and that's bigger though than that. Like the ciliary, the, the muscle, the ciliary muscle that we're talking about, you can't consciously relax them. They Tighten or relax based on what you're looking at. The only way to relax the muscles that I'm talking about in the case of changing the shape of your lens inside Mm -hmm. have to do with what you're looking at. And this is one of those cases where your environment is moving you. You cannot be in a room, you know, I guess you could not focus. I guess you could like let it blur out. But it's if if you're looking at anything, the distance at which you are looking at it, that's doing the work at setting your shape. The only way to get those muscles to relax or to look at things that are far away or be in a place where there's nothing close up to focus on. What's feeling good? What's Well, there's but now there's other muscles in the eye. That was just that was just that one okay. that responds to distance. Like but oh, what about all the like tensing your eyebrows? Mm-hmm. Or there are lots of other muscles kind of in the eye sockets themselves. So there's certainly lots in your eye. I just wanted to delineate because okay, I, I use that word a hundred times that there are there are other muscles that you can relax just by not tensing them, like squinting, right? If you think of like, if you squint, you're going to feel tension kind of on the forehead. So you can just soften that. But a lot of times you have to realize that you are in fact 
squinting. Another movement break, if we were to take a movement break, and we are, let's do that, is if you hold your head still, but then move your eyeballs all the way around their socket. So you've got muscles that articulate your eyeballs, but we don't use those as much as we'll just turn the head. Like if, if you're looking, if you orient your face straight ahead, if you look to the right, chances are your whole head will turn to the right. But you could also orient your head forward, keep it there, and just look to the right by moving your eyeballs. That's an eye, that's using your eye muscles oh. versus using your neck muscles to change the position of your eyes. So it's good to use your eyeballs without always using your neck to, to move where your eyeball needs to point. You totally just answered a question I had. Those Tibetan eye charts, mm-hmm. I never knew what those were for. It's an elaborate thing, and you put it, you put your nose on it, you hang it on the wall, mm-hmm. you put your nose on it. And then you just trace with your eyes without moving your head all around this, you know, kind of mandala or whatever it is. Just It's like a pattern. It's yeah, a shape. Yeah, yeah. And now, yeah. oh, thanks. Okay. So that's just, it's just mobilizing, right? It's, just, it. it's like stepping on a, it's like you have 33 joints in a foot and you step on a tennis ball to kind of break it up. Mm-hmm. The only way to break up the tension in your eye socket is to hold your head still and move in all of the ways that your eyeballs can. So if we talk about like, well, what's natural, if you look at animals that are trying to kind of hide themselves, like, or if you are a hunter, if you want to look at something, the easiest way to not call attention to yourself is by moving as little of you as possible. So if you want to see something to the right, if you turn your whole head to the right, that's a big shape that if something is looking at you, it can see. It can't see, however, you just moving your eyeballs Mm -hmm. to take a little look. So I believe that if we were in scenarios where we were kind of more in in accordance with nature and needed to just see something in a subtle way. Like everything we do is so gross, right? It's like so big. The whole body goes plopping along. There's not this refinement of, of different joints making finer or more refined movements. Everything's just like huge and clunky because we're very stiff and we don't have a lot of mobility in all of our joints. We have a lot of mobility in like eight of them. So stop using your neck in lieu of your eyeballs. Use your eyeballs break up that tension. And then once those muscles are used and innervated and infused, they're just kind of, they relax their tension, right? Mm -hmm. That's how you get stiff, tense muscles to kind of relax is by making them more supple, which doesn't mean just to stretch them out. It just means that they're more used and then they're more primed and they can themselves be less tense. Okay. And on that subject of relaxing, then do you think when you go outside, because I know you walk at different times a day, And then there's dusk where it's kind of hard to see, you know, when it first starts to become dusk. Mm -hmm. But then it's almost like it hits a point where your eyes let go. They relax. I mean, I've noticed this just in my own walking or at night if I wear, you know, amber colored glasses to block out the bright lights of the household. Uh, It almost just feels like everything relaxes. Do you think different kinds of light, whether early morning light or darkness because we just really don't spend much time in darkness at all. Well, that goes back to cross-training the eye. So again, eye muscles, that's a lot of different eye, there's a lot of different muscles that are doing different things. Some are inside, some are outside. You have muscles that control the amount of light coming into your eye. So again, if it's good for you to cross-train your hip joints, why isn't it good for you to cross-train the muscle that opens and closes and allows for different levels of light. And so when you go out into the dark, your muscles in your eye have to allow more light in. They have to relax Mm -hmm. and open. 
When you're in full light all the time, what happens to your pupils? They shrink. Right. But how are they shrinking? The muscle in there are contracting to allow less light in. So being in constantly lit, bright environments is to have tension in your eye all the time. And we don't, you don't start your day. I don't know if you don't, but in general, people go from sleeping, eyes closed to snap, the lights are on mm -hmm. and they're right to the eye tension. And they keep that eye tension all the way till it's time for the lights to go out. So that meant that the whole time that their eyeball was working, it was working in a very tense or one joint configuration, if we can call the amount, like the size right, of your right. pupil, a joint. When I go outside, I take a morning walk and I've been taking evening walks too. So my, my eye muscles are being trained by the amount of light that's coming in. It's a gradual process, right? Of they start really wide open because I get up and I stay in the dark. I get dressed. I go outside in the pitch black. I'll walk for an hour and a half in the first 45 miles. I'm sorry. Did I just say miles? <laughs> Dang, <laughs> you first, went from five to 45. Wow. The first 45 minutes, it's dark, but it's not all dark. It's right. slowly coming up to sunlight, which means my eye shape that the muscles that allow light into my eye, they're not just like dark, 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 dark sunrise. Oh, you mm -hmm. know, it's a, it's a gradual process. So if you looked at every diameter of your pupil, every degree, if you will, as a different joint configuration, you exposing yourself to sunrise and sunset is this very gentle way of mobilizing your joint through its full range of motion. Right. That's and cool. so that's another reason to go outside mm -hmm. and enjoy the sunrise and the sunset and to move outside because the amount of light is moving you. And if you don't want tense eyeballs all the time, then you're going to have to live some of your life in the dark and transition mm -hmm. to transition over, over, you know, 30 minutes, different levels of light, or else you'll never work those ranges of motions. It's all open or closed, open or closed, right? right? Very quick well, reflexes. I noticed when I, when I lived in Washington and would walk in the dark in the morning, I always had a headlamp so I could, you know, mm -hmm. see what I was doing. And then in Montana, something happened, I forgot it or whatever. And I had to walk in the dark and I noticed that I saw better in sure. complete darkness. And it was, it was just blew my mind. Yeah. I mean, like that's a, th it was easier to see. You can see better. So that, that's the thing. Do you mean see better? Like a lot of people would say, well, I can see better with a flashlight. It's like, well, you can see what the flashlight is on better, but you can't see everything around the flashlight mm -hmm. better. It's only if you allow your eyes to accommodate to the dark that you can see everything better not as good as you can see it with a flashlight, but you could see it better than once your eyes are looking in the dark. So it's interesting because, you know, we, my walking buddy and I used to go downtown because there are, <laughs> there's wild animals where we live. There's mountain lions and coyotes and just like window shopping. That... We used to go, well, we used to go downtown in the winter when it got no, really, not you, the animals. Gosh, I, I don't even like to think about that. I've just, I've, resolved to go like, well, we could be out here or we could be downtown where it's well lit. And so, you know, like the amber lighting, it was still mm -hmm. dark, but you were just walking on sidewalks and it felt safe. But then something happened and we didn't feel as safe downtown just because we got kind of like sketched out by some people one time. So we're like, you know, why aren't we walking? Like what is to really be like, you're going to have to deal with fear no matter wherever you are. And it just turned out that I preferred walking through the wilderness with someone else and we have a dog with us and and just dealing with the nature 
you know, the nature danger. And I don't even feel it as danger. I just need to be accustomed. And now when I walk, I don't have this kind of dull, I'm chatting with my friend, walking thing. I, I am so acute. My sensory, like I can heal, hear every crack. I can hear every bird. I am learning what nature sounds like because I decided that I would rather immerse myself in the dangerous wilderness than the dangerous urban mm. situation because I felt like my chances were better mm. <laughs> in nature. You know, I was like, cool. you know what? I have respect for these animals. They have it for me. I am part of this world. And wow, my eyes, my, I have learned to see better and to see shapes. And we can see people. There's other people out there sure. walking with us. That's cool. Emerging out of the darkness to see someone wearing pitch black and to see them to go. I didn't know what it was at first, you know, because they would be a couple hundred feet away. But you then you just start to see like even if something is all black, even if even if there's no light and you're only looking at silo, all black silhouettes of things, you can see movement better when your eyes get stronger at seeing in the dark. So I just feel like I'm cross training. It's been amazing. And do you still take the blind morning walks where you take your glasses off? I, I don't do that in the dark. Okay. So that, that was more of like a summer thing because I don't think I'd have, I will take my glasses off for the bulk of my walk and talk about eye relaxation, mm -hmm. eye relaxation that I can never get, but I could see just, I can see well enough. I'm not focusing really on anything, but my eyeballs are just relaxing and you know, your, your prescription kind of varies throughout the day a little bit. So I, I would be, I would love to do some sort of experiment. If I could get an eye doctor to give me an eye exam at night after being in my glasses all day long and living my life, doing podcasts and whatnot, versus right after walking outside for 90 minutes without mm -hmm. anything. It would be really interesting to see how those two differ. Any Have takers? Any, any eye doctors want to come out here and do that for me? I can see better. I mean, yeah, I can, I can I know. definitely see better without my glasses after walking for 90 minutes than I can. You know, I could probably do a very cheap, you know, your prescription is this simply the inverse of the dis last distance, I think, in, I want to say meters, but that's not right. I think that's something to do with that. I could, I could have someone, this is a good experiment. Are you ready? You could do this too. This would be a great homeschool experiment because do your kids wear glasses? One of them does. You would, you would measure the distance from them standing without their glasses. Like say before they go to bed, you're going to be like, although you should do it in the same light. What distance do you have to hold something from their face for their ability to be able to read it? The closest possible distance or the, the farthest possible distance they can still focus on it. Then in the morning, go out and take a walk and then repeat that experiment and see if that distance doesn't change. Because that's essentially what your prescription is telling mm. you. Interesting. So it's... So like, yeah, negative seven. Yeah. So that's, that would be a good fun experiment to see if there's any change. And I would probably say maybe do it after one day, but do that experiment every day for a month and plot your data there. That is a good project. It's fun. It's math. Yeah, no, it's it's yeah, measure. It's, it's the scientific process. That's a great fun thing. And it'd just be interesting for you to see if that changes at all. Mm -hmm. If a child, you know, your child had glasses quite early, like you know, first grade or younger, would you get that filled or wait? Because they're, I, I mean, their eyes change. Like my little girl was, they, they said in the first grade, well, she could wear glasses, but the eyes change. And so we opted to not mm -hmm. and just, you know, let her do what she's doing. But 
that's a you know that's a big that is a question that I don't feel I can answer okay. because because it has more to do with a larger philosophy like everything that I'm talking about goes into like one big philosophy of something so if you're not going to change anything else like if you're like you know what we read this and we decided that we are getting rid of our television and we are going to prioritize 5 miles of outdoor walking every day like that would be how I, if you're going to ask how, what would I do? That's what I would do. I would just change all, all the other components of my life. I wouldn't just not get glasses. You know what I mean? Because I would, I would be like, I'm going to change the input more so than I'm going to change how you're dealing with the symptom. Needing glasses so, so is a symptom. So if you don't want to change the input that brought that about, then, you know, you kind of go like, this is the path that I'm on. I'm on this particular track of dealing with symptoms as they arise from the particular lifestyle where I'm like, oh, that's a symptom of this lifestyle. I will change the lifestyle. That's how I deal with it. Okay. On that note, then if your kid had glasses, would you have them recommend they take breaks like you do? You mean like if someone's listening to this right now and is going, should they walk? I mean, I'm sometimes my son just doesn't, you know, he just takes off his, it's easier for him to not have his glasses sometimes when he's doing things. Then why is he wearing them? Well, because if he other things, he has to do them. You know, he can only see, we've actually played the game where it's like, how far out can you go when you can't see this? But it's just for that relaxation thing. Yeah. So he, well, I mean, it sounds like he's, I mean, he's driving the, are you saying, should I continue to allow him to take eyebrows? Yeah, I'm not really even asking for me. It's just like, it's essentially a cast. See, that's the problem with glasses is once you have to, again, consider like the amount of close-up looking that we do is kind of unnatural for a human. It's certainly a requirement of society, you know, get reading, do your homework and do this kind of stuff. But it's not really like distance looking is more useful and more of value in nature, you know, like Mm -hmm. when your, your survival depends on it, but it seems like he is facilitating what he needs pretty well to take breaks. So, I mean, I would, I would say only wear the glasses when you absolutely need them, because when you wear them all the time, now it's a cast. And now that the ring of tension is going to be set based on the glasses that you have in front of your face. So the glasses themselves are going to induce a repetitive positioning of your eye. But if you could, again, still look at Another fun homeschool lesson would be like, what's the, what did I look at today? You know, and if you could, you know, there's there's all these GoPros, right? What if someone just put a GoPro on their shoulder and just said, I want to see what you've been looking at all day. So for someone who's been looking to buy a GoPro homeschools and wants to put it on their homeschool tab, a GoPro, instead of, you know, measuring the rarest of cool things that you do. What if it just sat on the shoulder of your kid so the kid themselves could see the hours on the computer, Mm -hmm. on the screen, and then you could plot it. You could say, okay, here's an hour and a half of film. Measure the distance between your and your computer. Now you can plot the distance. Like these are, this is how you essentially quantify this this problem. But it'd be fun for kids, you know, homeschooled kids or any kid, not to be homeschooled. It's just something interesting to teach your kid. This is the project. You're going to wear your GoPro you're going to wear it at school. You I don't are think it's it just everywhere. for kids. I mean, I think it would really behoove an adult to have yeah. a, a day and just write down the different distances yeah. throughout the day. But I think day. that they kind of know. You kind of already know. You go to work, like that's many, how, how, how many minutes did you really look beyond your computer? Mm-hmm. You know, you could, and then you just look at how many TV shows you watch and you know that that's the distance right there. You don't necessarily need the minute by minute, but it would be a very cool science experiment for anyone out there who's like at that 
age of a kid trying to figure out what they're going to do for the science fair, mm-hmm. looking at distance, I mean, the incidence of myopia, you'll have the show notes, you'll have the stats, you can there do you this go. project. And there, when you win your award, just make sure you list us in your That's right. Katie just got your, your kid an A. You're welcome. Well, and then what? send it to me because I want that data. That data is awesome. Yeah. That data needs to be made public. Okay. I have one more question, then we got to wrap it up. Sunglasses. Mm-hmm. Do you wear them? And do you wear them all the time? Like you personally? No, I don't. I, I wear them if I want to look cool or if I want to go someplace and be more under the radar. Like, so I would wear them for low profile purposes. Like going incognito? Yeah, mostly. I don't wear them for to keep the sun out of my eyes. Like I don't have a problem with the sun in and out of my eyes. I've also almost never worn sunglasses. Again, I'll wear them. I usually wear them to keep my hair out of my face. That's <laughs> like I wear them because it's an easy headband to wear on the top of my head. So I have a couple pairs. I lose them all the time. I probably wear them less than three hours a year total wow. the amount of time they set on my eyes. I, I like them most for wind. Mm-hmm. I don't like wind. Like if I'm going out in something particularly blustery, I will I will pop them down. I in Ventura where I lived before it was we would get Santa Anas in the sand, so I would use them in those cases, but not for light. Okay. But if you are someone who wears them all the time, then I would just say, again, transition appropriately. If you're like, I'm kicking those to the curb, it's like, well, but you you might not have the tone in the muscles, you know, right. or the use. So so start with lighter light, lighter lenses, you know, something that doesn't block as, as much of the light go out into low light. See, again, a lot of this comes the fact that we are only outdoor creatures in the summer. So you don't deal with low levels of light in the winter. You go right from indoor living to outdoor living and it's, you don't have a good transition period. So you have all these coping mechanisms that kind of minimize And it's a whole different light in the winter and the fall. Of course. Even the same time of day, it's a whole different light. Of course. I've actually been transitioning because I've worn sunglasses my whole life. Hmm. Just because whenever I have contacts on, they just were sensitive to the sun. Hmm. And now I'm able to be out in bright sun yeah. without them, without my eyes watering. And it's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. Well, your eyes get stronger, right? It's just like all this is about transitioning to a, a body with more parts for the environments that you wish to dwell in. But I hate when people recognize me on the street all the time. So I know. They're I'm like, wait, Danny, Danny. <laughs> I think that... <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Then I like run like the Beatles down the street. <laughs> Are they huge? Are they huge? Like in dark and like the kind of glasses that say, would you someone please recognize me? <laughs> I go, I go through LAX all the time and you see celebrities all the time. I'm like, you are wearing celebrity sunglasses. <laughs> if you wear those sunglasses, only people who wear those sunglasses are celebrities. Those are sunglasses that say, I'm a celebrity. Would you pretend that I don't want you to notice me? Please mm-hmm. notice me. So That's you want to go for some dweeby sunglasses. Like I find used sunglasses all the time and they're dorky as all get out, but whatevs. That's awesome. All right. Well, this was fun. We have to stop. I could go We do on have to stop. On, I know. We, we have, have to stop. stop. People mull on that. But you know what? Do a week of eye training. Like you're going to like, 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 like mm. I'm from California. <laughs> for example, what if we all said for example instead of like? For example... If you are already taking walks and trying to go outside and you're already doing these things, just pay more attention to your eyes experience. It is, I can't tell you how sensory input through your eyes and your ears will be what is missed most when you're older. When I talk to someone like my father, who's still extremely vital in his brain, 
his sensory input is what's dragging him down the most. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that he just can't see in all types of light and that he can't hear anymore, that those are the things that we take for granted that really diminish your experience, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, there are people out there. I have a sister who's profoundly deaf and I have friends who are completely blind. So I don't want to diminish from their human experience. However, if it's something that is within your capability of training and paying attention to how you use it, it's just another way to broaden your understanding of human movement. Mm-hmm. The end. Excellent. Well okay, said. I'm that not going to talk anymore. That's very clear. Thank Take you. Us out. Thank you. Well, thank you, Danny. And thank you, everyone You're out welcome. there for listening. Oh, my gosh, we really appreciate it. And we are just joking. If you see us on the streets, whether we are <laughs> hiding behind our movie star sunglasses or not, uh, be like, Danny! Just yell at us. That would yep. be awesome. For more information, you can stalk us on social media, right? Mm-hmm. You can cool. find books. Move Your DNA. If you haven't read Move Your DNA, I can't recommend it enough. It will give oh, all of these shows so much more context. You it's can find, fantastic. Thank Please you. Read it. You can find it at nutritiousmovement.com. Also, Danny, one thing that you just don't ever promote enough is the fact that you you blogged about walking every day for a year, yes? I did. It was one of the most profound experiences of my life still. Yeah. Go check that out. Go, go. What's that, that called? Was, that was called, so go to walktheyear.blogspot.com or you can just type in walk the year. Walk the year. And then if you want to find more about Danny, extremely nearsighted movement warrior, <laughs> check her out at moveyourbodybetter.com. Thank you. Thank awesome. you. Awesome. Have a great one. Bye everybody. We hope you find the general information on biomechanics, movement, and alignment informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and shouldn't be used as such. 